Head to netsuite.com slash briefing now for their one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. There are certain things most people do when they're running for president. Take former Vice President Mike Pence. He celebrated the 4th of July in Iowa. He marched in a parade, shook a lot of hands, and even visited an ice cream shop in Lamar's, which, by the way, calls itself the ice cream capital of the world. Who knew? These are the kinds of things you do to get in the good graces of early state voters. But Pence did not get an entirely warm welcome in the Hawkeye State. If it wasn't for your vote, we would not have Joe Biden in the White House. Do you ever second-guess yourself? That was a constitutional right that you had to send those votes back to the states. At a local pizza shop in Sioux City, a woman confronted the former vice president about his vote to certify the 2020 election results on January 6th. I'm sorry, ma'am, but that's actually what the Constitution says. No vice president in American history ever asserted the authority that you have been convinced that I had. And Pence calmly, but forcefully, pushed back. With all due respect, I said before, I said when I announced, President Trump was wrong about my authority that day, and he's still wrong. It's clear that former President Donald Trump and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election loom large in this race. And Mike Pence is one of 12, yes, 12, declared Republican candidates for president. So does a crowded field mean Trump is going to coast? My guest this week is CNN anchor and chief Washington correspondent Jake Tapper. We're going to get you up to speed on this race with the candidates to watch, how some are pitching their vision for a post-Trump future, and what history can tell us about that struggle. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Rind. Jake, welcome. How are you? Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm back from vacation. So it's like the first day of school. I'm really excited. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and your new book is out on Tuesday. It's called All the Demons Are Here. And definitely want to talk to you about that. But the presidential campaign is, is really starting to heat up here because we're only about a month-ish away from the first Republican primary debate. I think that would surprise some of our listeners. So can you tell us who is running for the Republican presidential nomination and kind of how should we think about this group? The way to think about it, first of all, is that, is that as of right now, former President Donald Trump, who is running for re-election or running for election, however you hmm. look at it, is the front runner by far. So when people say that Ron DeSanctimonious is doing fine with the farmers, no, he's not. He's not. He's actually getting absolutely destroyed. He's, he is getting destroyed. He's so low in Iowa. The next in line would be poll-wise, I mean, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You need to start cleaning house on day one. Who is reluctant to directly criticize Donald Trump by name, although he has been critical of him by implication mm-hmm. and in policy, talking about how he never finished the job having to do with the wall at the border and on and on. And if you are faced with a destructive bureaucrat in your midst like a Fauci, you do not empower somebody like Fauci. You bring him into the office and you tell him to pack his bags. You are fired. 
Then there are different groups. I would say a group of what I would call people who are appealing, trying to appeal to the Trump base and just offer a competing vision. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. Those individuals include former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who was Trump's UN ambassador, current South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. There is the group of individuals who are trying to draw sharp contrasts between themselves and Donald Trump. He is, for those of you who read the Harry Potter books, like Voldemort. <laughs> he is he who shall not be named. They include former Trump friend and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. It is the last throes of a bitter, angry man who wants power back for himself, not for you. Former Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd, who's also a former CIA officer, who has been very critical of Donald Trump. The issue is I'm not going to support Donald Trump. And here's why. Donald Trump is a proven loser. He hasn't won since 2016. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who has also been very critical of Donald Trump, although possibly not quite as strongly as Christian Hurd. But I think he belongs in that anti-Trump category. And then there is this other group of kind of unlikely individuals who are running who knows why to make a point for attention so there are a few people like that so why don't you tell me about this group that is staking out a firmly anti-trump position not afraid to go after him because it seems like that is a tough road to hoe because even after multiple criminal indictments it doesn't seem like trump has lost a ton of support. It is definitely a position that I think they feel as though they are running in such a way that they will be able to sleep well at night, that they are right and will look good in history. Hmm. But let me also say that that, as somebody who is an amateur student of history, that's not nothing. Hmm. Um, Margaret Chase Smith was a Republican senator from Maine who stood against Joe McCarthy in 1950 And she did a lot of things in her life, but that moment of courage, which far outpaced not only other Republicans, but other Democrats, including Senator John F. Kennedy, stands as a mark of pride and honor. And, you know, if that matters to you, that's that's something to think about. Hmm. And so for this other group, then, the Nikki Haley's, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, who who probably know, right, to some extent, they they need to peel off some of those Trump voters to have a chance. How are they kind of framing their messages, being cognizant of that fact? By not directly attacking Trump, although Nikki Haley has moments where she does. Hmm. But generally speaking, just trying to attack Democrats, trying to attack Biden and hoping that people will, A, find them more appealing than they find Trump. And also that, B, there will be an argument made, and it is being made, that Trump can't win a general election. 
that the voters who turned against him, who voted for him in 2016 and did not vote for him in 2020, that mm. he's certainly not done anything to win them back and they are just as opposed to him now as they were before. And there is an argument to be made uh, along those lines. If you look at there is a, there are a number of voters out there who don't like Trump and they don't like Biden. And of those voters, Biden has a huge advantage with them. Hmm. When that same question and that same same group of double haters um, was polled in the Hillary Clinton Donald Trump election in 2016, Donald Trump had an edge with them. So the double haters are a significant and important group. And the fact that people who don't like Biden or Trump will vote more likely than not for Biden is an important statistic. Jake, you've been talking about how some of these candidates are trying to pitch an alternative to Donald Trump without fully bashing him. Nikki Haley certainly fits in that category. And you actually hosted a CNN town hall with her last month. So you got a deeper look at her vision for the party. What jumped out to you that night? She, I thought, was interesting. She criticized Trump, but didn't mention his name. She leaned in on social issues. Mm. The trans community was a group that she went after. How are we supposed to get our girls used to the fact that biological boys are in their locker rooms? And then we wonder why a third of our teenage girls seriously contemplated suicide last year? I was kind of surprised the way she did, actually suggesting that, unless I misunderstood her, that trans girls were responsible for girl suicide and girl depression. You talked about uh, girl suicides. And I think one of the reasons why, when you talk to educators, what is going on with all all of this embracing the pronouns and embracing of trans kids, et cetera. Uh, According to the Trevor Project, half of transgender transgender and non-binary young people have seriously considered suicide in the past year. And a lot of these efforts, and I'm not defending any specific effort, but a lot of these efforts are about trying to stop that. And I'm wondering, is there room for the humanity of these young people in this debate? They're absolute. We need to take care of these kids. And that's why in South Carolina, when we had the issue of, you know, we would, they were transgender kids when I was governor. Yeah, the bathroom bill. Yeah. I, we didn't have the bathroom bill right. because I didn't have the bathroom bill come into South Carolina because I knew that if we had a transgender child, they would come meet with the principal. The principal would give them their own private bathroom so that they were safe and the majority of the student body didn't even have to deal with it. Just noting the, the high rate of suicide and depression among trans kids was was my pushback on that or my response to that. But look, I mean, she, you know, she clearly won over the crowd in that room. We just really want to know, what is your plan for effective protection for pre-born lives? Could you share your plan with us? Absolutely. So I am unapologetically pro-life. But I'm not pro-life because the Republican Party tells me to be. On abortion, she tried to talk about finding, finding some sort of approach that wasn't as severe, let's say, than as the six-week ban that uh, DeSantis signed into law in Florida, which is essentially just a ban because Mm. some women don't even know they're pregnant until after six weeks. You talked to a lot of Republican officials 
from all over the country. What is this party now? Because I'm thinking of, especially from Ron DeSantis and some others, this focus on culture war topics, the war on woke, so to speak. Do you get a sense that that will actually motivate the average Republican voter? Or is this just extremely online conversation for the people that are still on whatever is left of Twitter these days? Like, what is the Republican Party right now? I mean, the Republican Party is is any number of things. There are people who you talk about the war on woke. That is a that is a, a real thing. That is a real group of of people who might have been Democrats. I don't know how big it is, but people who might have been Democrats or suburban moms at one point and don't like what happened during COVID and mm. how aligned Democrats were with teachers unions. Then trans rights is part of that. There's a group of, you know, just very religious evangelicals and, and Catholics and other groups, Orthodox Jews and, and such that are disapproving of the secular mores. There's a group of, you know, fiscal conservatives and people who want lower taxes, smaller government. But there's also this very strong, let's call it anti-interventionist position that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and others have, have been voicing. But, it, you know, it really is just a coalition of different groups. And you could, yeah, I could, we could run down, run through the Democratic Party, too. Sure. Right. But what does history say about this current moment for the Republican Party? I know you studied some of these past moments of transition as you wrote your new book, right? So the book, uh, all, the, all the Demons Are Here, takes place in 1977, which is a very fun and weird and wild period in American history. And the book intertwines two stories. One is Ike, who's an AWOL Marine, who is on the pit crew of legendary stuntman Evil Knievel out in Montana. <laughs> and his sister Lucy is a journalist in a brand new DC tabloid called the Washington Sentinel. For anybody who's a political nerd, I think they'd like to read it. Um, but also if they are interested at all in just a good yarn that takes place in a in a weird time. You look young enough that, that you probably weren't even born in 1977, I'm guessing. I certainly was not. Yeah. But I like reading about it. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be it's a fun read. And it's, it's all the novels I write take place in a different era. I've done the 50s and the 60s. This is the 70s chapter. But the Republican Party in the book is not unlike the Republican Party in reality that we were just discussing, because that Republican Party in real life was trying to figure out where did we go from Nixon hmm. and Watergate? What do we do now? What's the direction we set? And uh, we are now in a period where the Republican Party is trying to figure out where it goes from Donald Trump uh, hmm. and the January 6th uh, insurrection. If they go at all, maybe they just stay with them. Right, because Trump's still here. Yeah, that's fascinating. The book is All the Demons Are Here. It is out this Tuesday everywhere you get your books. Jake, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much, David. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz, Cece Armstrong, Aaron Mathewson, and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer, and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Thomas Broadbent and Ariel Edwards-Levy. If you like the show, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell anybody. Just let them know you're listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing. netsuite.com briefing.